0: We are going to talk about difficult relationships this morning. Um, You know that, or maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you wanted to go somewhere else, and this is the overflow session, so here you are. Um, I do understand that, too. Um, So we're going to talk about difficult relationships, and I'm going to start. Proverbs 22.15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and nowhere is that more on display than in personal relationships of three, four, and five-year-olds. You ever seen that? I've parented a few of those, and now uh, Ann and I are in the midst of uh, being grandparents. And uh, so we see difficult relationships between three-, four-, and five-year-olds. And I think there's some things you would agree mark those relationships. The, the disputes between three-, four-, and five-year-olds tend to be uh, pretty trivial. The subject of the dispute is usually a toy, uh, food, or, or something else that's unknown and it's soon forgotten. The winner of the argument whatever that might be, has probably accomplished nothing of import. They don't even remember what they were fighting about. Um, Difficult relationships between uh, toddlers are emotional. They cry a lot, don't they? A couple weeks ago, one of my granddaughters says, Papa, you're breaking my heart. Oh, I took the knife out and thought, that's a difficult relationship. They let their emotions dictate What they say and do rather than letting what they know dictate what they think and what they say and what they do. Those relationships are marked by payback. You take my toy, I'm going to take yours. You slap me, I'm going to punch you. There's a lot of name calling. We call it slander. Um, There's a lot of uh, tattling. They talk about it. He did this to me. Well, she did that to me. Um, They're always offended. The child is consumed with themselves and their agenda and their comfort, and their dispute with another child tends to be because they have taken offense at what another child has said or done or not done. They're unforgiving, they never forget. Um, I, I, uh, I think I've found that this is especially true among little girls, they never forget. And basically what I'm describing is immature relationships, right? Wouldn't you expect all of this from a 3-, 4-, and 5-year-old? It's, it's immature relationships. They're acting their age. In fact, sometimes I will say and have said in that context, stop acting your age, which is kind of a silly, it's a recognition that the expectations I have of your behavior are not the expectations that are reasonable for a 3-, 4-, or 5-year-old. But the description I just gave you describes a lot of relationships in junior high, not just three-, four-, and five-year-olds. And then I came to find out it marks a lot of relationships in high school and college and in the workplace and in homes. And I'm sure you recognize that and you, you see that. And as I walked through the end of my father's life and now several other people's lives, I find that that is what marks relationships in retirement homes. In other words, it's the human condition. So a verse that covers it all is, is Colossians 3.8, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Boy, if we all lived by that, there would go difficult relationships. So life is full of difficult relationships. It's a fact of life. They're in front of us every day. They're in our own life, and they're in the lives of others. You observe difficult relationships. You live in difficult relationships. And I wonder how many of you, when you hear the news or you read the news, think about the news in the context of the relationships that are represented in that news story. I'll give you some examples. I think of the story last year. Some of you might have heard this. Many of you probably did. The grandfather who was on a cruise ship playing with his granddaughter, and he dropped her. And she fell to the dock and died. It's a terrible story. And we tend to think about the baby that died and the grandfather, but do you ever think about the news in the context of what must that family be like today? You've got grandma, you've got grandpa's daughter, the mother of that baby. What is that relationship like? You have a son-in-law. You have the siblings of the baby that was killed. That's what I'm talking about when you listen to the news and you think about it through the prism and through the frame of relationships. It's all around us. I mean, 2020. The longest decade, I mean, year any of us can remember. We've been under house arrest, confinement, There are those that tell us we should not even be associated with anybody outside of our immediate home. And for people who adopt that, um, they have been confined within four walls with very specific relationships. Have you ever thought about the implications of that? Some of you have lived the implications of that. You've got relationships that have nowhere to go. They are what they are. And they are 24-7. There's not the usual distractions of getting to go to church, going to work, socializing with friends, I'm talking about marriages and family, parenting. There's the heightened pressure of lack of work for a lot of people because of the economic situation. Have you, and I know you're all following that, but have you thought about that in the context of human relationships? We've uh, heard from the uh, police department that they really want us. They really want church back. Not just Grace Church, but just church. Why? Because the number of domestic violence um, calls has gone through the roof. Difficult human relationships. Two weeks ago, a man named Robert Bryans, and I know some of you heard about this, abducted his twin two-year-old daughters in San Diego, making threats to kill them. A little while later, he drove off a 30-foot cliff into the Pacific Ocean at Point Loma with those little girls in the back of his car. That moment was captured on a surveillance video. You can go watch this video on the Internet. A San Diego police officer rappelled down the cliff, swam into the water, and rescued the father and the two children. Uh, My understanding is they are both going to recover what is the future of that family's relationships? When you listen to the news, do you think about human relationships? What, they, what those stories represent? Your difficult relationships might pale in comparison to what I just some of those. Um, but life is hard. Life is difficult on this planet. And there is no promise to anybody anywhere in Scripture that you will not have difficult relationships in your life. So that's, that's a filter of listening to the news. How many of you read your Bible and think about the difficult relationships represented in the Bible? I'm, I'll give you some examples. Genesis chapter 2. Yes, all the way back in Genesis begins the story of difficult relationships. You have Adam and Eve they're in the garden. It's perfect. There's peace. There's joy. There's no sin. They live in a perfect world. They live a sin, in a sinless way in a perfect world. They have perfect communion with God. And then Genesis 3 tells us they blow it. All of a sudden, they're in a fallen world. they sin. The husband and wife experience marital difficulties because it's pronounced in the garden, the curse. His leadership is going to be flawed. She's going to desire to usurp that leadership. And therein lies, by the way, the foundation of 100% of marital difficulty right there in the Garden of Eden. And it didn't take long for relationships to unravel. Genesis 3, 12, when God confronts Adam about the initial sin, do you know what Adam did immediately? Who do you blame? Blamed his wife. Okay? you think that's a difficulty? He, he basically says, I didn't do it. It was that woman you gave me. Can you imagine Eve's eagerness to love and follow that leadership? In Genesis 4, it gets worse. Adam and Eve's oldest son murders their younger son. Difficult relationships, difficult family relationships. In a short period of time, Adam and Eve um, personally experienced going from living in perfection, a sinless, beautiful, peaceful environment, to the depths and the horror of a fallen world and broken family relationships. And it's been ever since. So... Let me give you some more examples from the Bible. And today's a lot of stories, by the way. It's not story time, but the Bible's full of stories that help illustrate biblical principles about how to deal with difficult relationships. I want to talk about the two Saul's in the Bible, the Old Testament Saul and the New Testament Saul. Some of you know these stories. In the Old Testament, Saul was the king of Israel and he'd been rejected by God as king in 1 Samuel 15. Some of you know that story. God removed his blessing from Saul. In the very next chapter, God selects the next king, a young man named David. And David happens to be working in the king's court. So think about that human relationship. You have a king who's a very proud man who's been told God has removed his blessing from you, and this young Shepherd boy who plays a musical instrument in your court is going to be the next king. It's a difficult relationship. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 10, it says, It came about the, on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house. You have the picture? He's raving. While David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual, and a spear was in Paul's hand, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. If you pin somebody to the wall with a spear, what are you doing? You're killing him. Okay? I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. He tried to kill him twice in one session. The next chapter, 1 Samuel 19, 1. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. Later on in 1 Samuel 19, verse 11, it says, then Saul sent messengers to David's... By the way, he escaped that. Verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. Saul's daughter ends up telling him about the plot and and Saul escapes. There were many, 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 many more attempts on, on uh, David's life. Saul is obsessed with killing David the rest of his life. He even takes 3,000 men with him at one point to kill David. The reason is, Saul knew, the Bible tells us that Saul knew that the Lord was with David. Saul was afraid of David, it says in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 18, 29 it says that Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul's life was devoted to ending David's life. Have you ever experienced someone threatening or attempting to kill you? Or ruin you? Talk about a difficult relationship. Some of you actually nodded that you've experienced someone trying to kill you. Were you ever asked to give their eulogy at their funeral? David was. There's an amazing example, and if you go to Second Samuel chapter one, if you're following along, Second Samuel chapter one. Saul has died. He and his sons were killed in battle together. Um, and because David is the new king, he's the one that's asked to go on national television and do the funeral for the for the dead king, if you will, before the nation. There wasn't television, by the way, I know that. I'm trying to give you the perspective that David has the opportunity, the responsibility to eulogize this man who has devoted his life to killing him. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, records what David said, and he said, Israel, the great scourge that is Saul has been removed. Is that what, it, is that what he did? He did not. He tells the truth where he can without talking about what a bad guy Saul was. He never mentions in his eulogy that Saul devoted his life to killing me. It's like it didn't happen. Verse 23, he says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They died together. They had a good relationship. They died together. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put orna- ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? He says several things there about Saul, all which were true. And he didn't say other things which also would have been true. It's an amazing example of grace and wisdom and honor in spite of a very difficult Difficult relationship, to put it mildly. Then you have the Apostle Paul, who was also known as Saul. If you go to Acts chapter 7, and I could go through 40, 50 stories from the Bible. But what I want to do the rest of the time now is I'm going to begin the story of Paul and then draw some lessons, and then look at the conclusion of the story. But Saul was known pre-conversion, or Paul was known pre-conversion as Saul. And it says in Acts 7, verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they're talking about Stephen, who was being killed because of one reason. He was a Christian. They had driven Stephen out of the city. They began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named... Saul, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over them. This was a big deal, that Stephen was killed. And Saul was heartily in favor, and it goes on to say, verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church. Entering house after house, dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any Christians, any Christians, anyone belonging to the way, it says, both men and and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's Saul. Later on, Paul describes this part of his life. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent, violent aggressor. That was Saul. Until Christ reached down and touched him in Acts chapter 9, Saul is converted. He becomes a Christian. And what does Saul want to do? He immediately wants to jump into ministry. Think about this through the prism now of difficult relationships. You think church is hard here sometimes. You think there's difficulty and disagreements in the church here. Think about this. Acts nine verse twenty. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, "He is the Son of God." All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, "Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Is this the same guy?" Verse twenty six. You know it was the same guy when he Paul came to Jerusalem. He was trying to associate with the disciples. Why do you think that was difficult? He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. You understand why they would be afraid of him? They were not believing that he was a disciple. Verse 27, but Barnabas, remember that name, Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles. Let me kind of review What we just heard. Saul has been persecuting the church. He's ravaging the church. He is a violent aggressor. And not just men, but men and women. He gets saved. Now he wants to be part of the church. And what's the church's response? You can imagine. There's fear, wouldn't you imagine? He tried to kill me. I'm on his kill list. Now I'm supposed to go to church with him? Perhaps he killed my family. He put my friends or my family in prison, my wife, my children, people I go to church with. There's a lot of anger. Can you imagine the anger, the righteous anger? This is the man who was trying to destroy the church. There's jealousy. Can you imagine the jealousy? People who are already teaching a Sunday school class, and here comes this guy who was just trying to kill Christians, and now he's going to teach my Sunday school class? difficult relationships there's the issue of authority he's trying to kill me and now he has apostolic authority he's going to i'm supposed to sit under his teaching i know none of you criticize the teachers but can you imagine the criticism in that church yeah you know he he imprisoned or killed my family how am i why should i sit under his authority In spite of all of this, you know, I read this to you, Barnabas steps in, takes Saul under his wing, leads by example, and and introduces him to the apostles, and we'll come back to that story. The overriding story of Saul, who becomes Paul, is grace. Grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who reached down and saved him, and grace because people did sit under his teaching. People did welcome him into the church. So you have Old Testament Saul, you have New Testament Saul. And your life might be full of difficult relationships, maybe not on the level of what I just described. I picked some fairly dramatic examples. You might have difficult relationships with friends, current and former, family, a spouse, children, parents, difficult relationships at work, a difficult boss, difficult fellow employees, Current events have highlighted difficult relationships, politics, how to respond to what's going on in this world. I see it. We see it. It is driving a wedge in relationships. There's all kinds of reasons why there's difficult relationships. And today we're together going to obey the command in Hebrews 6.1 that we are to press on to maturity. Maturity. So I want to talk about how we progress on, press on to maturity in difficult relationships. Biblical maturity resolves most difficult relationships. I didn't say they restore it, that maturity restores them. I didn't even say that it necessarily reconciles them. But it resolves them. And I want to show you how and why. If you have your Bible and you're following along, go to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start there, verse 28. And this is a map towards maturity. How do you jump into the process of maturity? Verse 28, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man Mature, complete in Christ. There's two things we do. We proclaim Christ, and we get warned, admonished with wisdom. That is the progress towards maturity. There's two elements, Christ and wisdom. And now I want to go through three passages fairly quickly. And there's 20, at least, when I was putting this together I went to find every passage that I thought might address difficult relationships in the New Testament, and I stopped at 20. There's way more than 20. So I'm, we're just going to hit three of those. Turn a couple pages over to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to see does proclaiming Christ have to do with difficult relationships and the process of maturity. Colossians 3, verse 12. So as to those who have been chosen of God, we're proclaiming Christ. Christ chose you if you're saved. He considers you, the next words, holy and beloved. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. And here we proclaim Christ again. It says, just as the Lord what? Forgave you. Proclaiming Christ leads us to some conclusions that help us resolve difficult relationships. But there's also the wisdom. First of all, Christ forgave you. And the wisdom is in difficult relationships that you and I are to put on love and compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness, patience. We need to bear with each other and forgive one another, and all of that under the umbrella of all of that is exactly what Christ has done for you and at this very moment is doing for you. And we are then to live in like manner in all relationships, whether they're easy or difficult. So let's focus now on two more passages, more wisdom. We need to be warned by this wisdom And if you're taking notes, Romans 12, 17 through 19 and Titus 3, verses 2 and 3 are the two passages that I want to focus on for a few minutes. Romans 12, 17 to 19 says never, I'm going to repeat that, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Titus chapter three, verses two and three. That we are to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Verse three, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And what I want to do is out of those two passages, we're going to do just kind of a brief commentary of those two passages in the form of nine commands. There's nine commands in those two passages. Nine descriptions of the difference between a mature response to difficult relationships and an immature response to difficult relationships. Nine elements of evaluating your response to difficult relationships or a difficult relationship. Let's work through these. First thing it says in Romans 12, 17 is do not. In fact, it says never repay evil for evil. That's number one. A mature response In a difficult relationship is that you don't repay the evil that has been um, extended towards you. Never. By the way, the assumption here is that you will be the target of evil. If not now, you will be. You need to plan on it, and you also need to plan now to turn the cheek. Never return evil for evil. You turn the cheek always. You know, in a world where truth is so gray and so multiple choice, supposedly, this is one that's really clear. It says never. Maturity is bearing evil without repaying that evil. Number two, it goes on to say that you are to respect what is right. Respect what is right. What in the world does respecting what is right have to do with difficult relationships? Well, it's speaking to integrity, honor, truth, honesty. Don't lie to, your, don't lie to other people about that relationship and don't lie to yourself about that difficult relationship. This is the time and truth wisdom that comes from 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your behavior excellent so that in the thing in which they slander you as an evildoer, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God. Maturity is living according to truth rather than feelings. It's living according to truth rather than your preferences. You deal in truth. That's maturity in difficult relationships. And sometimes that truth is uncomfortable truth. Number three says in Romans 12 that we are to be at peace. And this is really important. Number three is be at peace. And if you're in difficult relationships, you know this might be the hardest threshold one that we're going to talk about. We all want peace. But it says, if possible, We define peace as reconciliation or restoration. Paul makes abundantly clear here that we are to be at peace if possible so far as it depends on you, it says. The implication is that it takes two for peace. It may not be possible, but you and I should not be doing anything to prevent that peace. And it says... All men, every one of us. And the question is, are you known for peaceful relationships or are you known for contentious relationships? Constant drama. Maturity is peaceful. Maturity doesn't necessarily guarantee peace, by the way. If someone is intent on combat, they're going to have combat, aren't they? But so far as it depends on you and me, Maturity says, we aim for peace. Number four, another never. It says, never take revenge. Number four is never take revenge. You'll have the opportunity to expose and destroy. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You're in a difficult relationship. You have the ability to go on the church patio and let everybody know. Because you've got truth on your side. And in a sense, that becomes taking revenge. Paul says, never do it. Do not do it. Never. We we live in a cancel culture. There's a term I didn't know about a few months ago. I know what it is now. It's just another label for taking revenge on somebody. This is responding to offense by writing somebody off, putting the word out that this person's evil, this person's bad. That's taking revenge. The cancel culture is living as if somebody doesn't exist. And there's lots of implications of that. But the most basic is that it's yet another sign of a godless, sinful generation. That that is acceptable behavior now. And the Bible says that's immature behavior. It's Immature behavior. You see, punishment is always the domain of God. With very limited... Exceptions, like if you're a police officer. Punishment is not something that's delegated, an authority delegated by God to you and I. That's his domain, and we need to remember that. You see, revenge is the opposite of forgiveness, and maturity forgives. Number five, here's a hard one. We need to trust the providence and the purposes of God in those difficult relationships. Maturity trusts that God knows all of this and he's doing something. What it says in, in uh, um, Romans is that you don't take your own revenge. You leave room for the wrath of God. Do you see that? We all want to take our own revenge. We know better than God how to deal with this person. Someone who's mature in Christ understands, I need to step back from that thinking and let God do what God's doing. You need to trust in the wrath of God. And I'm not saying that the wrath of God necessarily will be aimed at that person that you're mad at. Guess what? The wrath of God may be coming for who? You and me. We, and we need to trust in that. The wrath of God may be for them, or it may be for you. But we need to trust the Lord. God knows all about the difficulty. He knows all about the injustice, the unfairness of the relationship. He may be using it for your good, or he may be using it for the other person's good, or he may be using that situation for both of your goods. But we do know this. He's using it for his what? His glory. You need to trust that always. You know, revenge and wrath, I've talked about this, is the exclusive domain of God, and when you have a good understanding of the providence of God, it helps you to stand down. Just stand down. Walk off the battlefield. That's maturity goes with faith and maturity they go together maturity trusts in the purposes of God yes even in that difficult relationship that difficult marriage the difficult boss the neighbor the parent the child whatever God is sovereign he is his providence is at work in everything number 6 number 6 is Titus says we are to malign nobody. That is speaking evil of somebody. Maturity understands the wisdom of Colossians 4. And I know you know this verse. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Sometimes the best speech in the context of a difficult relationship is no speech, right? Silence. We are to malign nobody. I remember growing up hearing, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it. It's biblical. If you're tempted to malign somebody, speech, gracious speech is sometimes no speech. Everyone does not need to know the details of your difficulty. Everyone does not need to know the details of why that is a bad person in your mind. Maturity controls the tongue. Number seven, be gentle. This is the quality that should be evident if there's ever a need to talk about a difficult relationship. And sometimes there is. Titus Titus 3 says that we are to be gentle. It's the opposite of harshness. And we need to remember the example of David eulogizing a king for the nation while knowing in his heart what a bad guy he was. He was gentle. What a great example. And gentleness will cause you to temper your comments and maybe even help you to stand down and be quiet. Let God handle that situation. Maturity is gentle. Number 8. Number 8 were to be humble because it says in Titus 3.2 that we are to show every consideration for all men. That requires humility because it goes on to say in verse 3, for we were also once foolish ourselves. I hope that reminds you as it reminds me that all you have to do is rehearse a little bit of your own personal history to extend a lot of grace and maybe humble yourself About how you once were. Never forget your own desperate state of sin and that you were forgiven and are forgiven over and over and over. Be humble. Maturity is humble. And then, number nine for those that this might apply to, number nine is grow up. That's maturity. Get mature. I decided just to be blunt and say, grow up. It's verse three, I already said this. It says, We also once were. Do you see that? That speaks to some of this should be in our rear view mirror. It implies the maturity of leaving all that behind. It implies growth. It implies that what once was is no longer present in our life. Is any one of us there yet? Go ahead and raise no, don't raise your hand. None of us are there. This is an ongoing battle, but maturity puts more and more and more of these difficulties behind us, and it also um, gives us hope that you, there is hope. You can put difficult relationships somewhat. They aren't going away, but the difficulty of those relationships can be resolved. Maturity is demonstrated by growing wisdom and effectiveness in dealing with difficult relationships. So there's nine, a list of nine elements of maturity in the context of difficult relationships. Don't never repay evil for evil. Respect what is right. Be at peace. Never take revenge. Trust the providence and purposes of God. Malign nobody. Nobody. Be gentle, be humble, and grow up. It's a lot of to-dos there, isn't there? Nine elements and evidences of maturity. Nine um, effective ways to deal with difficult relationships. It's a roadmap to mature relationships. And the interesting thing about that, and every other passage we could look at on this topic in the Bible, is that you... There's this one truth that I've found, and I know you probably already knew it. There's only one person you can change, and who's that? You. Nothing we saw here has anything to do with how we are supposed to change those other people. It's you. You just you you aren't going to be able to change anybody, and that should give you some peace, by the way. Sometimes we hear that, and it's a great sense of frustration. I could, if only I could change my spouse. This one thing, life would be so much better. Well, that might be true, um, that that one thing would make life better, but guess what? Many of you know this. You can't accomplish that. And rather than be frustrated by that, you should get some peace and rest from that again, in the sovereign purposes of God. The other thing is you're never promised easy relationships. In fact, I think we're promised that there will always be difficult relationships, but there's hope and peace and contentment available within those difficult relationships. What you are called to is not changing other people, but you and I are called to a mature response to those difficult relationships. So let me finish with the story. I think I should finish. I'm going to walk through the rest of the story about Paul and a guy named Barnabas. Remember Barnabas? When everyone was running away from Saul, who came to Saul? It was Barnabas. And there's a third player in the story by the name of Mark. Mark. So Paul is an apostle now. He is on his missionary journeys. He's spreading the gospel. And these uh, additional two guys are in his ministry with him. Barnabas is Paul's right-hand man. He's also Mark's cousin. And Mark is going to be a significant player in the story here in a moment. And Barnabas, whose name means encouragement... Um, is a guy who's assisting Paul um, in his ministry. Mark is Barnabas' cousin. He's also a childhood friend of a guy named Peter. Remember the disciple Peter, Simon Peter? Um, He is um, childhood friends with Peter. So Mark is an interesting guy. He's in the midst of all these relationships. And in Acts 13, it tells us that the Holy Spirit set apart Barnabas and Paul for a missionary journey, and that Mark went with them as a helper. Okay? So you have Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. And they've been set aside by God for a missionary journey. And in verse 13 of Acts 13, it says this, Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Meaning Mark left Paul and Barnabas and went back home. There's no explanation as to why or what the circumstances were. So you say, why are you bringing this up? Well, we find out later in Acts 15 that this wasn't pretty. This was a messy one. This is a very public problem. Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas are planning another trip. And verse 37 says that Barnabas wanted to take Mark along with them. Paul said no, and in fact, it says he didn't just say no. He insisted that they not take Mark. That breeze is a blessing, isn't it? I see some of you, Verse 39, Paul says this, or um, Luke says this, and there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, But Paul chose Silas and left. Do you hear what's happening here? You have, God has set aside Paul, Barnabas, and Mark to do ministry together. In the midst of that, Mark jets back to Jerusalem. On a future trip, Paul and Barnabas are planning another trip, and Barnabas says, I want to take Mark, and Paul says, no way. Wow. Wow. Something happened in Acts 13 that was significant when Mark went back to Jerusalem, and it caused Barnabas to split with Paul. It's a difficult relationship. It's very public, by the way. Everybody knew about this. How do I know that? <laughs> it was recorded in Scripture. We're talking about it on the church patio in July 2020. It's very public recorded in scripture for all time and eternity, and you can be sure all kinds of people were involved in this little drama, and you've been to church before, so you know people chose sides, right? I am with Paul. I'm with Barnabas. Interesting. Family was involved. I told you there's a family relationship here. So the families were involved because Barnabas and Mark were cousins, and I, you just wonder how much did the saying, blood runs thicker than water, play into this? The Barnabas took Mark's side and they went off together. Difficult. Public. Well, six years later, Paul's writing Colossians to the church at Colossae. And in Colossians 4.10, he says this. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas' cousin, Who? Mark, about whom you received instructions, if Mark comes to you, welcome him. Six years later, things were fixed. It's amazing. In Philemon, small little book, Philemon, we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Verse 23, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do who? Who do you think? Mark. He's still with them, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. It's interesting, in 2 Timothy 4, right before Paul's death, and Paul probably knows he's heading to heaven soon. In 2 Timothy 4, 9, he says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. He's lonely. People are abandoning his ministry. He has seen that before, hasn't he? And he goes on to say in verse 11, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Isn't that sweet? Something happened in Acts 13. It was big. It was so big that two chapters later, Paul is saying, no, we are not taking Mark with us. And he holds that line so firmly that it divides him and Barnabas. It's interesting. I want to give you an interesting note. Because of the split with Paul, Mark came under the intense leadership of his childhood friend, who was who? You remember? Peter. Back in Jerusalem. And based on Peter's preaching and influence, Mark wrote... The gospel of what? Mark. You see, Mark had neither accompanied nor heard the ministry of Christ. He was not one of the disciples. I don't know if you knew that. In fact, the book, the gospel of Mark in the early church was known as the memoirs of Peter. In AD 150, Mark was referred to as the disciple and interpreter of Peter. This relationship grew and blossomed perhaps as a result of the split with Paul. What seemed like a difficult relationship and a difficult outcome turned out to be the opportunity for Mark to be discipled and taught by Peter and as a result of that to write the gospel of Mark. You never know the purposes and plans of God. And I'm not saying I do, by the way. But it's interesting that if Mark had stayed with Paul, the gospel of Mark might not have ever been written. Or said another way, maybe one of the purposes of the split in that relationship was because God knew the gospel of Mark was going to be written. Trust the purposes of God and the plans of God and the providence of God. One more little detail here. Philemon I've already quoted Philemon. The book of Philemon is a letter written to a man named Philemon, who was a wealthy believer in Colossae. This letter was written about the same time as Colossians. Um, The church there met in his house, and he had a servant named Onesimus. It was a common name for a slave that meant useful. And apparently, Onesimus, at some point, had stolen money from Philemon. The only indication of what happened is in verse 18 of Philemon. So Philemon, whatever he did, ran away to Rome, chasing, getting chased by his problems. And what he doesn't realize is that he thinks he's merging into a large slave population there for anonymity, but the Lord brings him together with who? Paul, who is in prison. Paul leads Philemon to Christ. And through the ministry of Paul, Onesimus is not only saved, but he's discipled, and he realizes he needs to go back to his former employer. He's coming back to Colossae. And this is a letter from Paul to give Philemon some context about what happened with this man. Talk about a difficult relationship. Do you think Philemon, on his own, would be anxious to see Onesimus come back? Is he ever going to trust him again? Well, Paul writes this letter to appeal to him for the restoration of the relationship with Onesimus. Calls him to forgiveness, restoration. It says, "Willingness, with, willingly, without grudges, and a new status. He's a fellow heir in Christ. And at the end of that letter, I already read it to you, Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do, and he gives a list of men, and one of them is Mark. And my notes are flying away. Why would Paul mention Mark? Well, verse 24 in Philemon where he mentions Mark is a not-so-subtle reference to Paul's own, once very public, maybe even controversial split with Mark earlier in his ministry, a division in their relationship, a difficult relationship with Mark. Paul references that probably because he knows everybody in the church at Colossae probably knew about that, and Paul wanted to highlight that there is forgiveness, that there, he is an example. Paul's instructions to Philemon carried more weight since Paul had followed his own counsel and forgiven Mark, or maybe Mark forgave Paul. We don't know but that relationship had been restored. So what did we just see in that story? We see forgiveness. Like I just said, Paul obviously forgave Mark, or Mark forgave Paul. We don't know who harmed who, but Paul got over it. And that is the mark of maturity in Christian difficult relationships. Paul got over it. Mark got over it. Forgiveness... A lack of forgiveness is immature. It just is. Forgiveness demonstrates a maturity on two levels. One is its obedience to the command of God, but it's also living in light of the fact that you and I are forgiven. We were forgiven of all of our sins and we're forgiven day in day out by the God of the universe in all the ways that we sin against him. The other thing we see here is example. I mentioned this. Paul's example of forgiveness gave him the basis then to say, follow me as I follow Christ. If I can forgive Mark, you can forgive Onesimus. Your immaturity in difficult relationships is not a secret to those around you. That's the negative way of saying it. Your maturity in relationships, difficult relationships, is a phenomenal example to people around you. Those who know Christ and those who do not know Christ. There's nothing that exposes um, your maturity more than how you deal with difficult relationships. Providence. We just saw providence played out. Difficult relationships, like everything else, are within the control and the design of God and are for our good and they're for his glory I already talked about the gospel of Mark would have been different if Mark hadn't been diverted to ministry under Peter. Onesimus's crime or skullduggery, whatever it was, and his escape to Jerusalem brought him to Paul, who by God's providence led him to Christ. And Paul's di- public difficulty with Mark and subsequent reconciliation gave him the authority and the example to write Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. and every other passage I've read you today, he had the authority of his own life to say, this is how you should then live. And everyone who read that knew, he practices what he preaches. For those of you who are parents, the difficult relationships in your life are on full display to your children. They are learning from you what maturity looks like in the context of difficult relationships. We need to be an example. People at your workplace know about the difficulty in your relationships at work. They know, are you real or are you fake? And how you deal with difficult relationships. So the implication here is don't try to control people or relationships. The Lord is at work. It is not yours and mine to resolve all of that. It is yours and mine to be mature in that context and trust that the Lord will work all of that out. You should not keep broken that which can be fixed, but you cannot fix that which will be broken. You have to trust the Lord. I want to say that one more time because we get, you know, the elders and pastors and maybe some of you Bible study leaders get approached to fix relationships. And I want to say this one more time. We should not keep broken that which we have the power to fix, but we cannot fix that which, for whatever reason, cannot be fixed. We have to trust in the providence of the Lord. Trust God. Silence. Another thing we see here in this story that I want to drive home here is silence. There is so much we don't know about these stories. I mean, Acts 13 frustrates me to no end. I don't know about you, but when you hear something happens here at church, don't you want to know the details? That's the human condition. Because I want to take sides. I want to know who's right and who's wrong. Don't you? And what's really interesting is there's so much we don't know about these stories. We don't know what Onesimus actually did. We don't know what Mark did. We don't know how maybe what Paul did. We don't even know who offended who, who sinned against who. We don't know. What was their conversation? What was Paul's conversation with Barnabas like when he said, fine, I'm taking Silas and I'm leaving? Was it a gentlemanly conversation? Did they punch each other? What was that conversation like? Why do we have to speculate about that? Because we don't know. And why don't we know? Because it wasn't recorded, because it's not important. And I think that's a good reminder to all of us that when you desperately want to know the details of somebody else's difficult relationship, maybe it's not necessary to know, and maybe it's not necessary for you to tell. Silence. Silence solves a lot of problems be quiet. Immaturity wants to plead your case or damage the hurtful person in your life. Maturity insists that love covers a multitude of sins and that love may be best expressed by being silent. And when I say be silent, I'm talking about the grace vine, the, the family line, whatever it is. Silence is protecting somebody by not necessarily disclosing even truth. Love covers a multitude of sins. And lastly, there's maturity. I can't think of anything in, in life on this planet that produces sanctification and maturity quicker or more effectively than difficult relationships. They're not to be shunned. They are to be managed with maturity. Paul, Mark, and Barnabas, they're just frail people they're characters in the Bible. They lived in the same world that you and I live in. They were not perfect. They were in the same process of sanctification as you and I are. Nothing in life exposes maturity and immaturity more than difficult relationships. Nothing will work on your sanctification like difficult relationships. So, my takeaway for this for me and for all of us is we need to grow up, right? Mature. That's what I mean by grow up. Continue in the pursuit of maturity. Focus on Christ and the wisdom that comes from above. We need to remember Christ. He chose us. He forgave us. He knows all about the difficult relationships. He knows the truth. He knows the truth about those relationships that maybe you and I don't even want to acknowledge. God knows it all. That's Christ. We need to forgive because he's forgiven us, and we need to be wise. We need to be wise. Romans 12, Titus 3, among many, many other passages, there is no question from Scripture about wise living in the context of difficult relationships. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the chance we've had to be together this morning. I thank you for these dear, sweet, patient people sitting in a baking sun, listening to your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us, make application, challenge us where we should be challenged, encourage our hearts where we can be encouraged. Lord, help us to go from here, redoubled in our commitment, but also our effectiveness in living in a mature way in the midst of difficult relationships. Not that we would look good, but to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ and the advancement of your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.